This is Muslim in Plain Sight. I'm Anissa Khalifa. And I'm Khadija Khalil. Join us as we look back at 20 years of the war on terror and how our world changed as we came of age. Hey y'all, it's Anissa. In this wide-ranging interview, we spoke to Joshua Salam, the Muslim chaplain at Duke University and a member of iconic musical group Native Dean. He has a doctorate of ministry from Hartford Seminary and has mentored youth throughout his career. He talked to us about becoming Native Dean almost by accident, or perhaps destiny, his years in the army, and how his professional life took shape post 9-11. We tackled the hard questions, like our relationship with the military as American Muslims, and how to deal with anti-Black racism in our communities. In Brother Joshua's words, we jumped right into the ocean. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can donate using the link in the show notes, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, or simply tell your friends to check us out. We really appreciate everyone who has been supporting us in those ways and simply by reaching out to us and telling us how much this podcast means to you. It really keeps us going. And now, take our hands and let's swim into those deep waters together. Right, everybody now. We need y'all to stand tall, everybody now. Come on, all around the world singing. M-U-S-L-I-M, I'm so blessed to be with you. M-U-S-L-I-M, everybody now. Come on, I'm so blessed to be with you. alaikum, my name is Anissa Khalifa. Assalamualaikum. My name is Khadija Khalil. And we're really excited today to bring you Chaplain Joshua Salam uh, at, at Duke University and also a hero of our childhoods, one of the members of Native Dean. Welcome to the podcast, Brother Joshua. Thank you. Thank you. We're so excited to have you here. You know, normally we talk to people who are kind of of our own generation. That was kind of the concept of our podcast. But then we've also done a few interviews with people who, you know, are our elders or people who are younger than us, people who have like another interesting perspective to bring to the topic. So it's really an honor to have you here because I think your voice has carried us through a lot of things, um, especially when we were younger. So we're really excited to get into this conversation with you. Such a beautiful way to introduce an old person. <laughs> from a different generation all the way <laughs> i didn't say it you said it yeah. oh, okay, okay. but i'm happy to be here you guys are cool <laughs> thanks sorry and i just wanted to also add that like during my time at duke brother joshua was really we started together i was starting my master's and he was starting as the chaplain and it was really special to start our journeys there together. So, yeah. And I really appreciated your mentorship and your guidance when I was there. Alhamdulillah. So thank you for that. And your co-graduates as well. So That's right. Congratulations to both of you. Not, not from Duke, but we, we graduated with degrees at the same time. So yes. uh, from a whole different generation but in the <laughs> same year. You're not going to live this down this episode. <laughs> <and> you- <laughs> I think it's really important to, I mean, I don't think we can overstate the kind of impact that your work through Native Dean had on our, like, when we say youth, I mean like teens, early 20s, those sort of very formative years when we hadn't really figured out who we were. Mm. We were sort of struggling with the weight of what had happened on 9-11. And so there were things that we were able to cling to that helped us shape our identities. 
Mm. Um, especially as people who were practicing Islam in our youth. And that mm. isn't the case for every Muslim, of course. And that's it's one of the things maybe we can talk about later is that there's just something different about growing up in this environment where you prioritize things like your Islamic beliefs, you prioritize things like doing salah and mm -hmm. just living in a very halal way. Very difficult to do when you're young. And many of us are like second generation immigrants. So we were also at that point where we're kind of clashing with our parents' culture and the culture that we were trying to create for ourselves mm. as young Muslims growing up, uh, you know, as minorities in non-Muslim countries. So in all of that, the culture that was produced from I mean, I think like Native Dean's messages were some of the strongest. I was re-listening to the album, um, Dean, you know, in preparation for this interview, of course. Mm. <laughs> and it just really struck me that the way that we never do one thing when we do one thing, like, for example, you were making music, but you've also had like preceding every track, you had something else going on. Right. There was you were on your way to an election campaign to get a, a Muslim candidate yeah, elected yeah. to an assembly. Mm -hmm. Of course, I mean, not of course, I don't know how scripted that was or how, you know. No, no, that, I'm glad I'm glad you brought that up because um, <laughs> that was keeping uh, the tradition of men of raps. See, in men of raps, there was always something before the song. There was like, it didn't just go from song to song to song. It was ah. like, there was like a skit. There was a... There was something else happening. So when we did our first album, we thought of this thing of let's pretend that we're on our way to the studio to record the final track, right? So we started mm -hmm. at the, you know, the gas station, you know, gassing up, yeah. turning on the car and, <laughs> you know, meeting somebody at the gas station who was Muslim. Like, so that was all scripted. Yes. But the things mentioned were all real. Mm -hmm. So I was actually involved in running a Muslim brother for city council in, in Baltimore City. We did actually know a Muslim school teacher who had a, an Islamic school. And, you know, so we promoted what she was doing. That was before one of the tracks. So even though it was scripted, it was based on a true story. It was real. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that feeling really came through. Yeah. I appreciated it now in a way that I didn't then, mm. that that's what it means for us to be here. And now is that everything we do comes not with a side of justice, but justice comes with a side of everything else. Right. Mm. Yeah. I, I mean, I really love how you highlighted that aspect of like community, which is so built into like how you created the group in the first place and how you continued to make the music where it wasn't just the music. Although, of course, given what the music was about, it was never going to be just the music, but it was grounded in this context of like who we are in our communities and the relationships mm -hmm. that we have with each other and like what we're trying to do to make the world a better place. And then even when we were uh, consuming that music as youth, like I remember we, um, I was in Greensboro, North Carolina, little town, very small community. You know, like we were building the masjid the year that we moved to that community in 1998. And like we started these girls youth camps um, in this like old building that we had access to in like Reedsville, it was like middle of nowhere. And I remember I would like listen to the tapes and like write down the words to um, a few nasheeds. Like I think you used to write down like some from Native Dean and some from like Daoud Wernsbeli and, and we would like sing together or mm -hmm. I would sing. And I remember I still have that like sheet of paper where I have like all the lyrics to worldly satisfaction that I like sat there and like, because wow. you know, you couldn't just like look up lyrics back then on yeah. the internet. You had to sit there and just keep listening and keep listening and just, you know, make sure you didn't miss anything. And that was like a way for us to 
connect with our own peers. Mm. And and a lot of those kids that we had at the youth camp came from like less religious families, or maybe they didn't like have access to parents who could teach them the same kind of things that like I know I was blessed to have access to. And so it felt like we were like carrying that on through the music. And sometimes the music was more accessible to kids who were not as embedded in Islamic practice as like classes and lectures and Sunday school. Like that was that was easier. It was a way for mm-hmm. us to bring people in. In fact, it was the same generation, right? It was music from our generation mm-hmm. rather than something that was sort of out there and too far and that we couldn't connect right. to or connect right. our own struggles with. I don't want to hold y'all on, on this point. I know y'all got a lot of <laughs> questions for me. But I will respond to two things that you said. One, for those who don't know, Worldly Satisfaction is one of my most favorite chorus lines written by Abdul Malik. I live in a world where all I see is hoarding and greed. I pray to Allah to bestow for me all of my needs. It's nice. It was nice. And then he changed it up in the verse. Gotta get the goals. Gotta get the goals. Get the goals. Yes. You know? So that was a really nice song. But also, I don't think we created Native Dean. I would definitely created some groups. I created one group with my friend Yassine. It was called Sons of the Crescent. And another brother joined us, uh, Faisal Qatri. And, and we intentionally formed that group and started making uh, songs and we made an album. But we feel that Native Dean was kind of formed by the community because it wasn't really intentional so much so from us. But since we happened to be on a project and we were individual artists, people started asking us to perform those songs and asking us to travel here and perform the song and travel here and perform the song. And after a while, we just kind of said, Man, I guess I guess we're a group now. Right. Mm. But it was it was by demand of the of the community. And so it was very, very different origins than some of the other groups I've been a part of. That's a really beautiful story. It's kind of like Allah brought you together and you didn't really have much say in it, but in the most beautiful way possible. Yeah. And then you were like, oh, hey, this seems like our destiny. Exactly. Exactly <laughs> what happens. SubhanAllah. That's actually a perfect segue into the first question. Yes. Actually. So take it away, Khalita. <laughs> One of the things that we like to ask all of our guests is because this podcast is about how we dealt with life after 9-11. We kind of like to rewind and ask you about what your life was before 9-11. Who were you? Who was Joshua Salam on the 10th of September, 2001? I know I was working on Capitol Hill in D.C. on September 11th. But what day was September oh, wow. 10th? Was it that a was Monday? a Monday. It was a Monday? Monday. Mm. So, uh, yeah, I was at work on that day as well. I was, a, uh, I was managing the Civil Rights Department at the Council on American Islamic Relations in Washington, D.C. And so my job was, uh, you know, any Muslim who called us and said, hey, I... They're not letting me wear my beard, or uh, I like to wear my hijab, or um, they're not letting me pray, or you know, my boss just said this and it was very offensive and it's created a hostile work environment. We we would handle all of those cases, and then there was a a diff- different division that would handle more high political type of things uh, with Stephen Emerson and and other people who were attacking Islam in the media. But my job was more just in the civil rights department, Muslims working in employment and in schools, sometimes, you know, Muslim students in schools and things like that. Um, so that was my daily grind. That's what I was doing uh, every day. And so when uh, before 9-11 for and, and I started there in the year 2000, uh, freshly coming out of the military uh, in, in 1999. I was in the military from 95 
to 99. And then after I got out of the military, right before a local um, uh, sheriff's department hired me, because I was a police officer in the military. So mm. it, it just seemed like a natural move to go straight into law enforcement in the civilian world. But they accepted my you know, resume. I was going to get hired. And then I got a lead from somebody that CARE was hiring. And I was like, yeah, you know, I should work for the Muslims. That's kind of what my mother's always instilled in me. So <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I took the job at CARE instead. Yeah, we have a lot of affection for CARE. Our first guest was actually uh, Zahra Bilou, who is uh, the CARE San Francisco executive director. Oh, is that right? Okay. Yeah. Wow. She was our first interview. You spoke about being in the military for a lot of people, that seemed like a counterintuitive choice for a Muslim. Can you talk a little bit about what you did in the military in terms of like establishing Islamic practice and what it was like to be part of that institution right before? It would have been right before 9-11, right? <coughs> well, well, years before 9-11, because I, I went in from 95 until oh, 1995. Yeah, a whole generation, okay. you know. You know whole, whole <laughs> Two years is not before. that long when we're this age, right? <laughs> so yeah, from 95 to 99. So it was like two years before 9-11. Mm-hmm. And I, well, I got out two years before 9-11. But yeah, when I went in, I was kind of late for most people going into the military. I went in when I was 21. So I had already mm-hmm. like gone to college for a few years and things like that. But for sure, when I went in, I was just a regular Muslim guy who didn't know much about anything other than, you know, you go to Juma, maybe your mother was active in a Sunday school, so you went to Sunday school a lot of time, but you never had to do anything on your own. I came from very established communities where everything was set up and you just go. And so when, mm-hmm. I, w- when I went into the military, I guess it was, a, uh, it was a weird surprise to find out, wait a minute, there's nothing going on for the Muslims. What do I do? You know, you grew up in New Jersey, right? No, that... I was born in New Jersey. You were born in New Jersey. Yeah. Okay. Born in New Jersey, but raised in the Midwest between Missouri, Illinois, and Indiana. Oh, okay. Oh, I didn't realize. Yeah. So I left New Jersey. I shouldn't say I left. My mother left and I was with her when, when <laughs> I was four years old. Oh, you know? okay. So yeah, I don't remember much about New Jersey. We went back to visit often and I have family in New Jersey, all through New Jersey. But yeah, my really roots are between Missouri, Illinois, and Indiana. Kansas City, Missouri, suburb of Chicago, Illinois, and Indianapolis, Indiana. And so you were asking a question about, uh, oh, oh, so yeah, you know, there was nothing there. And I went to the chapel and I was like, do you have anything for Muslims? You know, I said, I saw Catholic services, Jewish services, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and I was looking for Muslim services, just thinking that it would be there. And it wasn't. And so they were like, no, we don't have anything, but if you like... You can help get it started. You know, there's this thing called lay leadership training, and we can send you to this uh, Islamic kind of school. I don't remember what the name of it was, but it was right in D.C. They had Muslim scholars there, and, and one of the programs that they had was in connection with the military and training uh, lay leaders for Muslim services on campus. So I did that, oh, wow. and uh, and I came back to the base and started Juma. Mm-hmm. And would you believe that as soon as I did that, Muslims started coming up? I mean, they were just coming out of every place. I was like, wait a minute. Wow. There, there's, there's Muslims on this base? And they just, <laughs> wow. they just started coming to the, to the service. And then we outgrew the chapel uh, eventually. And so we, we had to start renting an apartment off campus. I'm, I keep saying campus because I'm on university now, but off base. And so we, we found a house and we started renting it. The way that we rented it was we did a car wash every week. And 
we never charged for the car wash. We, it was donations only. But people gave enough money for us to pay the rent of the house. Uh, and so we were praying there for a while, over two years. And, mm-hmm. and now, would you believe they have like two mosques in that city where there wasn't one there before. So, mm-hmm. um, and I remember my first khutbah. I didn't know how to give a khutbah. I was like, I had to look online and, and try to find like a, a video or something. And like, like you were doing, Anissa, I was like writing it down. Okay, what did, <laughs> what did he say again? And, um, you know. Very 1997, right? Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. That's amazing. So basically your chaplaincy journey actually started back then that's true that's true and I didn't even know it yeah also I just want to appreciate for a moment here the role that your mom has played in all of this which is giving you that strong foundation so that when it came to it you actually realized you had to make those choices by yourself right yeah yeah like God bless all our mothers (laughs) God bless all our mothers I mean God bless them I mean and your question took an interesting turn and I I, not that I want to answer it or that I, I'm pushing it, but I thought you were going to ask me about the Muslims' like adverse reaction to joining the military, period. But you, you took the, uh, the question in, a, in another route, which I also appreciate, of you know, what was that experience coming from a strong Muslim community going into the military and how did you kind of live and survive with that? And, and actually, the military helped me establish that. Well, since you've brought it up, can we talk about that a little bit? I told you, you don't have to ask. Let's just go. Tell us. Let's Let's go. So I guess what I want to know is like, there's two parts to this, right? There's A, what you mentioned about how it it generally doesn't have a positive reaction. I'm sure that sometimes when you tell people, oh, I was in the military, they might have certain reactions to that that are not exactly the most pleasant. But then also like as a a Muslim yourself, like, did you ever feel... um, conflicted about being in the military or did you feel uncomfortable or um, was there anything about it that you know maybe later on you didn't feel the same way as when you joined like did your motivations change and was that something that led you to leave the military I know that's a lot of questions but you know, <laughs> whatever you want to answer um man y'all just do it on you told us not to hold back so that's a dangerous thing to tell us right right so I'll say this, the whole dialogue that happens in the Muslim community around Muslims in America or any country that's not Muslim, quote unquote, um, but let me focus on America, that, that in Muslims in America that join the military, that whole conversation, that whole tension surrounding that says a lot about our understanding of a self. It says a lot about our identity that we have within this country. And I think it would be nice if we just had a, like a conference on that and like dig deep and talk about it. Because for me, there's no difference between if I was a Muslim in Saudi Arabia and you join the military in Saudi Arabia and then Saudi Arabia is bombing Yemen, right? How do you deal with that as a Muslim? How, how did the Muslims who uh, were in Iraq and joined the military in Iraq address the issue with the Muslims in Iran? Or the Muslims in Kuwait when there's that mm. when there's that conflict, right? Anybody who joins their military and their country decides to attack, and it doesn't even matter like to me if they're Muslim or not, they decide to attack somebody who you feel is being unjustly attacked, right? Yeah. How do you how do you deal with that? How do you resolve that? What do you do? And that reality is for all people in all places. 
it's not just for a Muslim in America who joins the American military. You're going to have that same conflict in any of those conflicts. And if I go back even further, you're going to have that same conflict if I was under the leadership of Ali, may Allah be pleased with him, battling Aisha, may Allah be pleased with her, right? They, they were battling and, and their people who supported them were battling and people died. It's like, well, what do I do? This is Ali, but what do I do? This is Aisha. But, you know, they're, they're at conflict with one another. Uh, and so I think people just need to reflect on that, that it's not, not to put it in a sense of you're Muslim and you're joining this Kufar military and, you know, I don't see it like that. I see it as its uh, responsibility uh, for people living in a country, uh, enjoying its rights and its privileges, that, uh, you know, if you can, you should uh, work to support that. Whether it's politically, whether it's, you know, be a good citizen, whether it's paying your taxes, right? But in a Muslim setting, if you're not Muslim, you're not required. But it's not like you can't serve in the military, right? So uh, in Muslim countries, the men are like required to serve and to go to war if that's what happens. And if you're not Muslim, you're not required. You can pay some type of tax or something like that and be relieved from that responsibility. However, if you were a non-Muslim living in a Muslim country, you could. You could say, no, yeah, I, I understand you. I've been living here as a non-Muslim. You guys are protecting me. My family's been thriving. I want to join and go serve to protect us from whatever threat is out there. That would That's allowed. And so I think on the flip side, it would also be allowed for me. It's like, okay, this isn't necessarily a Muslim country, but I've been living here. We built a masjid here. We established prayer. We've been, we have a Sunday school. We have halal foods. We have books. We have all this stuff. We train as scholars here. We have some freedoms here. Uh, yes, I don't have to, but it's something that I'm willing to do to go and serve. And now what happens when my government decides to do something unjust? doesn't matter if I'm Muslim, Christian, doesn't matter if it's America or Saudi. Now that question will become the same. How do I prevent my country from doing something that's unjust? Okay, so it might be I will no longer serve and you can get arrested for that, right? It's called a conscientious objector. If they don't approve your objection, then you can go to jail. But that's your faith. That, so that's you stand by that. So I'm, I'm not going to attack this country because I think that this is an unjust war. Um, so, yeah, I think Muslims and people of faith have to deal with that question no matter where they are and no matter where they're serving. It's not just a Muslim issue in America. That was kind of complicated. I hope you guys understood. I know. I asked a complicated question, <laughs> so I appreciate you, like, digging deep into that. And I, I agree with you that, like, uh, at least personally for me, the question of the military is one that's complex and difficult no matter what military you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And it, it doesn't sit easily you know, as a, as a person of faith, because there is no perfectly just government in the world right now. And so that's kind of part and parcel of the whole project mm -hmm. is that you're, there's probably going to be things that are going on that you don't feel okay with. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is that I absolutely think that we need to have this conversation in our communities. Mm -hmm. And I also feel like there's an aspect of this that Muslims, some Muslims don't understand, because I think there's also an element of like class and race in here. And we're really not good at talking about that in our communities, you mm. know, like why people enter the military in the first place. A lot of times if they're only access to education, for example, for some people. Mm -hmm. And then I know that there's a much stronger tradition of entering the military among the African-American community. And we're just not good at having a lot of these conversations in a nuanced way. And especially since we've been at the brunt of so many of these things from like law enforcement and the military since 9-11. Mm -hmm. It's very emotional. For a lot of people. Mm. Absolutely. 
And so it's hard, but I think it's necessary for us to talk about this stuff. And I think we tend to deal with the question by abstaining from it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I don't know if abstaining is the right word when perhaps it is running away from the question rather than saying, you know what, I can't make a good choice here, so I'm not going to. It's more of a, there are no good choices, that's it. Mm-hmm. But that sort of brings me to one of the questions that I'm curious about, given your military career, which is, were you making the same choice in sort of, say, between 2001 and 2003? Would you have chosen differently, given what the US government was doing at that time with the invasions of Afghanistan, the war in Iraq? Would that have affected your choice? Um I, th- I think so, because I think I would have, let's say you would like to think so. I don't know really what I would have done or what I would have decided. But I think I probably would have been leaning more towards politics on the other side. Because I think p- only people who hated Muslims saw 9-11 as uh, inspiration to join the military. It was like, okay, now we're going to go and fight those guys who attacked us and I feel like I need to join the military to support my country, right? right. Um, mm-hmm. You should have evaluate the response of the Muslim community when America decided to stop the massacre and ethnic cleansing in Bosnia to, to try to get an idea of what would cause Muslims to join the military with that type of fervor, right? Mm. They have been asking America to intervene for a while, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and finally, when America decided to do something, there was all this like rah-rah support. Uh, You can imagine like the whole Israeli-Palestinian conflict, right? Uh, Muslims have been asking America for so long to protect the Palestinians from, you know, these atrocities and and things like that. Uh, And there's other conflicts, Kashmir and things like that. What would be the uh, mindset of the Muslim community if America finally decided to go in and say, okay, we're going to support, we're going to protect, right? That would be a good analogy to how people were joining the military after 9-11. If for me, I wouldn't have, I don't think I would have been so like, oh, let me go join the military because we're going to attack Muslim countries. Of course not. But I do see the military as a tool of America. Uh, some people see it separate, like it's its own thing. Like don't join the military, but they're living in America mm. and they got a business and they got you know all this stuff, but it's like, don't join the military. It's like, dude, the military literally works for the government. It's all part of the same so, machine. Yeah. It's yeah. all funded by our own taxpayer dollars, like whether you're in there or not. Yeah. So like you're if, complicit whether you want to be Exactly. Not, right? So if anything, if you're going to live here, you have a responsibility to be so involved that you have a say on what the military does. You have a say mm-hmm. on if they're going to pull funding from Iraq and starve millions of people, which is what happened, or if they're going to continue that funding, right? You have a responsibility to be so involved in your government that you can have influence on what the military does, what the politicians do, all of that. So I think I would have probably been more inclined to get involved more politically as opposed to in, in the military in 1995. Mm-hmm. And, and I still encourage people to kind of take that mindset. Like whatever complaints you have about America, if you choose to live here, it should be inspiration for you to be more involved, not to be... Like, well, that's why I don't vote and that's why I don't join the military and that's why I don't work mm-hmm. here. It's like, okay, no, but if you're going to live here, sister, brother, you got a responsibility. In fact, Muslims around the world are kind of counting on you to, yeah. you know, control your control your government. 100%. Make sure that they're not part of these secret 
missions to dethrone democratically elected people, which we have been a part of. We, we have a responsibility to control our government and, and to make sure that it's responsive to our constitution and to the, the ethics that we try to live up to, as opposed to just saying, well, I'm going to pray Juma, but this country sucks. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. But. Yeah, I, that actually reminds me a lot of the conversations that we used to have back then when we were trying to convince people to vote. Mm-hmm. And they would be like, no, no, you can't take part in this like haram system of government. And you're like, but you live here. Mm-hmm. Like, how else are we meant to change it? It's a very like head in the sand kind of right. denial mm-hmm. type of strategy of dealing with the world. It also reminds me of slightly off topic, but I'm really curious for your thoughts on this because of what you just spoken about. It reminds me of back in the early 2000s. I can't remember the exact year, but remember when Hamza Youssef was called to advise George Bush, George W. Bush on something. And he faced a lot of criticism for like, I don't know, holding hands with the enemy. And there was not a lot of nuance in the understanding of what he did. And I think he kind of gave up trying to explain it as well. Did you have uh, an opinion or view on that? Like, do you see that as part of the same thing? Yeah, I think with anything, there's a certain amount of wisdom that has to go along with it, right? So there's this thing that I, I say sometimes about doing the right thing at the right time in the right way, right? Mm. It, it takes kind of all three to get it right. And if you miss one of them, you do the right thing at the right time, but you do it in the wrong way then it, it doesn't come across as well, right? And so sometimes people with good intentions, you can do something and it's a good thing, but it just it just needed a little bit more time, wisdom, something for it to really resonate well. And I think that kind of falls into that category is that just because you know somebody invites you to do something doesn't mean that you do it at that time or you can say, yes, but we're going to do it this way to manage perception, right? You got to, community leaders have to do that. Like even at the time of the prophet, I remember one story where it was revealed to him who the enemies were within his ranks, right? Now, if you look at this from a military perspective, imagine that somebody tells you in the military, here's the spies working for, I don't want to throw out any country, but, you know, Russia or whatever, you know. (laughs) Russia is an easy one these days. (laughs) Right, right. Or China or something like that. May Allah bless all the people in China and all the people in Russia. This is just for the sake of conversation. And here they are working in your ranks. Well, in, in America, that's, you know, treason is like punishable by death or something like that, right? Uh, the prophet said, even though he knew who they were, he wasn't going to do that to them because people would say, look how he treats his own people, right? So he had the knowledge, he had the ability, but he was managing uh, at that time perceptions and the growth of, of the faith. And so if you're kind of operating by yourself, uh, you can make a lot more of those mistakes. If you operate mm-hmm. with, with a, kind of a group think and shura and diversity within your ranks, you make those mistakes less. It's not that you don't make them, but you make them less. And so I think uh, Muslim leaders have to make sure that they move uh, with a certain, a certain amount of group think and not just their own rationale based on, well, this is Islamic, well, this is okay, the prophet did it. You know, it's like there's a lot more that goes into it as far as timing and how and when and who's the best person for it. And so I ask a lot of blessed people for their intentions. Uh, and it's not to say you're ever going to get it 100% right, but just make sure that you're, you, you have a, um, a group with you of diversity. So rich people, poor people, black people, white people, immigrants, indigenous, Salafi, Sufi, Shi'i, you know, all, you know, have some diversity amongst you that helps you make decisions 
as opposed to a person just saying, well, this is this is the sunnah and so we're going to go through with it. Mm. It's really deep, mashallah. Diversity yeah, and decisions, you. absolutely. It's actually come up in, I think, one of our previous episodes as well, is that, you know, the necessity of having a shura comprised of all of the different people in your community to lend you balance in the decisions that mm. you make. I forgot the most important, uh, men and women. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we're kind of assuming at this point women are there. But they're not, are they? You know, uh, Brother Joshua, <laughs> you're the first male guest we've had in this whole season. Oh, really? So Yay. Yeah, since September. <laughs> so congratulations. Help you meet quota. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can be our token. <laughs> token brother. I don't mind. I don't mind. Alhamdulillah. So to shift gears a little bit, you know, we anticipated some of the things that we wanted to talk about, but you were, as you said, on Capitol Hill on 9-11, and we haven't actually spoken to someone who was there in D.C., you know, so close to the Pentagon when everything happened. Could you tell us a little bit about what you experienced that day and what the aftermath was like for you and your community? I'm sure you saw a lot being at CARE the way you were. Yeah. Um, I apologize ahead of time because I have very strong feelings about 9-11, mainly because, I think mainly because I was a police officer in the Air Force, which means I had a strong background in criminal justice and law enforcement. Uh, mm -hmm. My bachelor's degree is in law enforcement. I worked as a private investigator for about a year. And so I was just very in tune to like looking at details, looking at information, trying to ask the right questions to get to the bottom of things. And 9-11 bothers me to this day, not for the obvious reasons, because thousands of people died in a horrific attack. But I felt like as a police officer, you know, a car drives up to a bank, somebody jumps out of the passenger seat, robs a bank, and then gets back in a car and drives off. As a police officer, I'm not just looking for the person who jumped out and robbed the bank. I'm also looking for who was driving the car, right? And if there's any other facts that make it seem like they planned it, you know, like, did they have a lookout? Was there somebody letting them know when the police were coming? I'm absorbing all of these facts to try to get to the bottom of the case. That's just how we operate as police officers and, and private investigators. And I feel like that wasn't done with 9-11. And since it wasn't done properly with 9-11, I've never felt safe since then because I felt like, well, shoot, this could happen again. If you're not, if you're not interested in who planned it, because maybe it wasn't even the bank robber and the driver who planned it. Maybe it was somebody else who planned it, right? If you're not interested in who planned it, who drove the car, who got out of the, you know, are you really trying to protect me as a citizen of America? And so it, it was crazy and everybody's attention was on that craziness, rightly so. The two buildings, airplanes flown into them, those buildings collapse. Then another building collapsed, right? In the same way. A lot of people in New York don't even know that. There was a third building called building number seven that collapsed, but no plane flew into it. Then, it, you know... D.C., the, the Pentagon was attacked. And then this happened. And then immediately it was like Muslims were being attacked and Muslims were being shot and Muslims were being stabbed and messages were uh, being raided and vandalized, you know, and it was like it was it was crazy. People started taking off their headscarves and people were like, do I even go outside? And and I'm working for this organization who's taking all these cases, right, mm. of cases of religious discrimination, cases of. Uh, somebody attacked me and the police aren't doing anything about it. So our, our numbers skyrocketed. We didn't even have time to think or breathe. Like we didn't even have time to grieve, right? Yeah. The, the attacks of 9-11 because we were immediately dealing with the attacks on our community. 
And there was real deaths happening. There was real murders happening. And there was real fear happening. And so it was just a, a crazy time to live through. And yet you had to get up every day and do it. And you had to deal with, um, most people know, like how that escalated to war and attacking Afghanistan. And then for a person like me who wanted to ask and press questions, you're being suppressed by the Muslims and people who are not Muslim under this banner of being patriotic. Mm -hmm. Really, you're going to ask that question when, you know, these are the people that did it. And I'm like, follow the information. Don't just go from your anger and start beating people up. Make sure you're beating the right person up, making sure you're asking the right questions, you know. But that anger and fear just kind of engulf the, the nation. Mm -hmm. And I think we made a lot of decisions that in hindsight, we probably would not have made if we took time to really take it like a, a case that any law enforcement would do. But that case was led by anger, fear, frustration, just the same way so many cases before were handled, you know, people getting out of prison 16 years later, 25 years later, because they were arrested in the time of racial tension and mm -hmm. they were easy targets to be arrested by the police and nobody cared about whether or not it made sense. Right. Yeah. They just needed a target for that anger. You just, you just need a hurt. target for that anger. Somebody was raped. Somebody was killed. And that's not to minimize the rape. It's not to minimize the 3,000 plus people that were murdered on 9-11. Uh, but there's, it's just, that's what happens. And that's what happened with 9-11. So I remember all of that vividly. And I still do. And um, I'm in some ways grateful that I was working at CARE and, and able to kind of be on the front lines of helping the Muslim community through that. And in some ways, you know, I wish that maybe I was somewhere else to help from a different different angle. But Allah puts you where you're supposed to be. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up, actually, because you're the first person who has um, to, to start with. But also, it's one of the things that I've noticed over the last 20 years, which is that the story about 9-11 has become a story that you can't question and you couldn't question it from day one. Like there was a very specific narrative. And for all of the reasons that you said, you know, it was never the right quote unquote time to ask questions. Mm -hmm. But as you say, there, there are a lot of legitimate questions to ask about what happened and why and all of that. And I wonder if at that time, did you meet anyone else who was asking the same questions as you were, or were you alone in the way that you were thinking? I wasn't. I wasn't alone. But you you risk becoming that guy, you know. Mm. And and I could see that, you know. You you just kind of become that crazy guy talking about all these conspiracy theories and all this stuff, and mm. and you kind of get moved out of uh, certain circles and and access. And so and by the time you try to get your thoughts together, like okay, how do I really put this together and package it and present it in, in the right way, something else is happening, right? And it's like, it just it just kept on moving so fast. And then there's like a media information overload. And then sometimes you forget and the memories become cloudy. I'll, I'll give you one memory that stands out to me very well, which is, you know, I'm watching the media, I'm watching the news, and America said they had evidence that Osama bin Laden was behind 9-11. And they, they said that he was in Afghanistan. And so they told Afghanistan to give them up. Now, Afghanistan said, okay, show us that evidence and we'll give them up, right? If he did it. America said, no, we'll show it to England and a couple of our allies. <laughs> and they showed, okay. they, they showed the evidence to other people. They never showed it to Afghanistan, right? And eventually they just attacked them. You know, they just attacked Afghanistan. Now, I would think that the whole world 
would at least have stood up to say, hey, well, before you start bombing this country and killing another 3,000 people or 5,000 people, they do have a right to see the evidence to give up one of their own or a person who's living in their country. And I would expect America to do the same, right? If somebody says Joshua was uh, guilty of, you know, doing something, again, we'll stick with the same countries in Russia or China and Russia or China, like he did it, give it to him. I would hope America would say, Joshua? I mean, if he did it, we'll give him to you. But he, he's, he lives here. He has a family here. He has a school here. Show us the evidence. And then, yes, you know, then we'll, we'll give them to you. Uh, that's the right of the country. And I was, I was so upset when they said, we showed England, but we're not going to show you. And, and I was upset with the rest of the world. Like, you know, that's just a procedural thing that should happen before you start bombing a country. But they said it. They said, we're not showing you. And they moved forward with it. So it's things like that. Like it's not from that that procedural thing isn't about Afghanistan. It's not about America. It's not about, you know, who did this or what happened on 9-11. It's about like, yes, we're going to find out who did this and we're going to hold them all accountable. Right. We're going to hold every single person, whether you planned it, whether you were just a lookout, anybody who was involved in attacking America on 9-11, we're going to hold you accountable. But there's a process. Mm-hmm. Right. And when you when you leave that process because of anger and fear and you start doing stuff to, stuff to innocent people, that lives with you for a long time. In fact, it breeds more people who wanted to attack you. And that, that has come out because of uh, Guantanamo Bay and all these other things, torturing that we've done. We've just only been building more people to hate us and want to attack us. And so uh, as a citizen of America, I, I have to be concerned about that. Not just about Muslims, but is my country doing stuff that is going to make more people hate us and more people want to attack us? And I think the world would be okay if somebody attacked my mother and I went about finding out who it was, most people are okay with that. Like, yeah, that was my cousin. I mean, I, he did it. So I understand, Joshua, you got to get him. You know, most people get that. You can't just attack and kill people and not be held accountable. Do you think that sometimes the scale gets so large that people kind of lose sight of what each piece means? For example, with the example of your mother, mm-hmm. it's easy for people to relate to that and understand that because like, oh, well, look, there's there's Brother Joshua, there's his mum. That's something that they can conceptualize. But when it comes to governments and countries and things like that, does the scale become so big that people kind of lose sight of what the things that they do mean? Yeah, I, w- I would think so. And I think that a lot of the leaders intentionally or unintentionally live in echo chambers where you no longer remember that you are supposed to be of the people for the people, right? That there's this whole thing that was happening in America with trying to give more powers to the president so that the president can make decisions quickly and so fast. And, and, you know, we don't have time for all of this democracy stuff. You know, we gotta, you know, we gotta attack, we gotta move. That I remember one statement that they said when people were asking for proof about Iraq before they went to attack Iraq, and people were saying, are you sure? You know, do they have weapons of mass destruction? And they said, do you want the smoking gun to be a big mushroom cloud? Right? I remember that. You remember that, right? So they were saying... It was just all propaganda. There was no evidence. There was no facts. And and so they're saying, okay, you want us to go through a process to make sure and, and find the evidence. And we're going to wait so long that the evidence you're going to get is a big mushroom cloud after he's already attacked us, right? And so we, we need to be preemptive. We got to get it. And they just kind of put the American people into that mindset, as opposed to there were people trying to press a process like, wait a minute. Yeah, it's a very spurious argument, isn't it? I think also the thing to remember is like at the time, 
America was basically the only superpower in the world. You know, like Russia had declined in a lot of ways. We, we didn't really have a big enemy to kind of keep us in check. We, we mm-hmm. had all the power and the government knew that if they pushed through and, you know, you know, Iraq was an illegal war and they did it because they knew no one was going to be able to stop them. And the Patriot Act was already written before 9-11. It wasn't like something that people were like writing furiously after the attacks. It was already prepared. Mm. And this was an opportunity for people to be like, yeah, let's take more powers for the government. Let's take more rights away from the people. Mm. So these are things that like happen when there's such a huge imbalance of global power people know that they can get away with it and they use things like fear and anger and people's hurt to kind of help to make that happen. push through things that they had always wanted to push through anyway. Yeah, exactly. To grease their way and to kind of shut down any kind of dissent. Yeah. You know, what's recently come out since we were talking about care is that there's been people like spying on care and and pushing information from care to other people who were like really enemies of, of Islam. And... I always say, like, you can't really fault most Muslims because you're not used to somebody scheming against you, right? When somebody schemes against you in private and they train and they they have the edge on you because you're just like, ah, oh, how's everybody doing? Mashallah. Yeah, you can come over. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, it's like, that's how we treat everybody. We, we, we just assume that you have the best of intentions, which makes it very easy for people to have bad intentions to slip into your ranks, right? So you have to remember that there's people who study that. There's people who understand that. There's people who really get that and take advantage of that. And similarly, there's also people that understand this thing that we're talking about of how the masses deal with fear, how the masses Mm -hmm. deal with distraction, right? It happens. So I, I really can't blame most people for what I'm saying, this is me like hindsight, thinking about it, reflecting on it. But when you're in it, you become a victim of it as well. Yeah. So if I'm really afraid of this wild bear, right, and it's rushing towards me, the closer it gets, the more imminent I feel like that threat is, the more likely I'm going to trust and give power to people that I wouldn't normally give power to, right? Yeah. Uh, So like if there's somebody else that's better with the knife or better with the gun, and I wouldn't have given him that knife or gun for anything because he, I didn't trust him. The closer that bear gets, the, the more like I'm like, hey, man, you, you know, just take it, help, help, yeah. right? And so that type of feeling, there's people that study that and they know that if people feel like there's this imminent threat that's coming towards them, you're more likely gonna give up your rights, which you wouldn't have normally done in times of peace or in times of a sound mind. Uh, and you'll do it every time, you'll do it every time. So fear is one of the things that we have to just be mindful of when it happens that we're a part of a, uh, like I said, a group uh, of people, diverse, that can pull us back a little bit and say, hey, are we making this decision because it's the best decision? Are we making this decision because we're just afraid that we're going to die or that, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, something like that? And is the thing that we're afraid of actually what we need to be afraid of? Or is our fear being misdirected to, Mm. you know, the wrong target? That's a deeper, yeah. The wrong source. Thank you for that. That's deeper. So switching back to uh, something a little more joyful, Native Dean was founded in 2000. And so you had started your journey together before that, obviously, but how did 9-11 impact the music that you made together and your journey? And like, did it change what you wanted to do with the band? Yeah, it it definitely propelled the band because 9-11 was a lot of people's exposure to Islam. For the first time. For the, for the first time. I was just watching yeah. something about 
Latino conversions in, in Texas. And one of the Latino Muslims said, you know, I found out about Islam after 9-11. And that's when I started kind of moving from Catholicism to Islam. It's like, you just never know what's going to expose somebody to Allah and the Quran and the Prophet, right? And so people started asking questions like, what is this faith? What is this about? Are these violent people? Are they, are they really sleeper cells in America just waiting to attack us? And, you know, so people started like reading books. So when all of that stuff was happening, they found out about what? There's a Muslim rap group? What? What's going on? And so we started getting interviews and Washington Post interviewed us and we had an article in there. And then that just kind of went from one thing to another. And then we started getting more tours. And so, yeah, the horrors of 9-11 created more hatred towards Islam, but it also created more interest towards Islam. And it had this weird dynamic that gave access to like a lot more Qur'ans were being sold. Yeah. People like us were getting more access to perform and share our art. And then our, our, it yeah. affected our music too, you know, for sure. I remember like, it's so true because, you know, in our masjid in Greensboro at the time, like, yes, we were getting a lot of death threats and like hateful messages on the masjid answering machine. But at the same time, like, I think for a couple of years, every single weekend, my parents were going to a different church because they had called and been like, can you come tell us about Islam? We don't know anything. We'd like to learn more. My parents <laughs> would joke that they were going to church every Sunday <laughs> instead of going to the masjid. I appreciate that tangible evidence. That's exactly, there were so many stories mm. just like that. The amount of interfaith, the amount of yeah. requests to yes. come and talk about Islam to our church, not even church sometimes, to like, we, there's a group of us that meet at my friend's house every, you know, month. And could you come next week and talk to us about, it's like, yeah, a lot of that was happening all yeah. over the country. And at that time, my family had an Islamic bookshop as well. And it was that period. I mean, my dad was an imam until about 99, I think. And from 99 onwards, um, he ran an Islamic bookshop. And just like after 2001, our shop got attacked. It originally was in the mosque and it was closed down. But then... The years afterwards, we had like shahadas every couple of days. We had shahadas, like the number of people like whose hands my dad held and, you know, took them through that process of conversion. I mean, people talk about chain migration. I guess we were seeing chain conversion. One brother would convert and then he would bring 10 other brothers and sisters. And now those communities are like, you know, 15, 20 years old. Mm -hmm. And they're all people who converted in that time. And it's just so amazing. And those people have children now and their children obviously have grown up Muslim. And sometimes when you speak to them, they just have these really fascinating stories of, you know, that they start off. It's like, what is it? Enemies to lovers, kind of enemies <laughs> of Allah to lovers of Allah, right? So <laughs> they would start off like hating Islam or having this antipathy. And then because of that hatred, they came into contact with like the Quran, they came into contact with Muslims, you know, masjids were doing open houses all the time. And like an Islamic bookshop at that time is a place that's easier to go to than a mosque. So we mm. constantly had people coming in for that. Mm. And it's yeah, it was really what a time to be Muslim. Yeah, it had all of those dark points, but it had such high points. Subhanallah. And, you know, so 9-11 happens, thousands of people were killed. There was forces, I think, that were going to use that to increase the hatred of people towards Muslims, right? Of saying, look, hey, look what the Muslims did. And uh, look, look at these passports. We found them. Uh, it, was, it was definitely them. Here, here's 19 of them. Look, okay, look, let's go uh, and get them. And it was all over the media. And, and in fact, it was very traumatizing for America. A lot of people talked about that, that we had to keep watching that. 
over mm-hmm. and over and over and over again to watch it on the smoke, the fire, the people jumping. I, I still have a magazine somewhere of somebody that had to jump out of the building because they had to choose between yeah. burning to death and falling to their death. You know, may Allah have mercy on them. Uh, just we had to watch that over and over again. And wow, this is funny. I'm trying to catch my train. Like, where did, where did my train go? I was I was going somewhere with this. SubhanAllah. The imagery, the imagery took my mind. It's very, yeah. Oh, well. Yeah, it was so powerful. And it was, we talk, we've talked about this before, but it, I feel like it's such a disservice to those people that we ended up weaponizing their, their deaths and the grief that we felt for them in such an unjust way. Mm. And it led to so many other people being killed and, and oppressed. It's really a tragedy, honestly, on top of another tragedy. Yeah. I'm sorry, I'm getting emotional. Um, yeah. Can you share with us some of your thoughts, you know, having done all of this, you've got a massive, what would you call it, a reservoir of experience now, not just in your chaplaincy work and in your work in security, but also in your work as a person who produces like culture for Muslims Mm. through art and music. What are your thoughts on the impact of art as a way to fight the hatred and the injustice that we've experienced in all of that time since 9-11 and before. It's not like we weren't experiencing it before. There's a reason why you had those camps and yeah. all of that. I got to try to stay focused now so I don't take a tangent and then lose myself. Um, but art is a language in itself, right? And so it has a way of speaking to people from different cultures, from different generations, right? It transcends in, in many ways. And so... I think, at least for me, when I reflect on the origin story of Native Dean, one of the things that made it difficult, and I think if we were under different circumstances, we could have gone further, was we were coming in in a time when in America there was a dominant opinion that music should be avoided, right? Mm. That's right. Yeah, and it was it really constricted us. Mm, I grew us. up with that. Yeah. That's why I listened to Native Dean. Well, even... Even with Native Dean, we were being constricted in many ways. And so this art form was, it was kind of coming in that. And so we were, we, were, we were trying to argue and make a case that this art is actually helpful. It's actually healing. It's actually doing so much good that you got to let it go. You got to let it, you know, get to the people and you got to support us. And we have to do this. Uh, and of course, there's always some p- person that would say, well, you know, I'm sure... Alcohol has some benefit too, brother, you know, uh, but you, you got to weigh the good with the bad. So we came up in that. And for most of our career, sometimes we, we dealt with that in different areas of the community. And sometimes we still do, you know, but not as not as much as before. And so art, I just think is sometimes you hear a song. I can hear a song sometimes in a different language. And it's the tone. It's the way the person sings it. It's the music that connects with me. I don't even know what they're saying. But it may be a song. It might be a song that I play when I'm sad or when I when I need to be uplifted. You know, just because the power of voice. And this is actually a, a little plug for the human voice. One of the things that my mother says when people play Quran in their house, she said, "Yeah, playing Quran is good, but as much as you can get someone to recite it, when you're really trying to find that protection from maybe you feel like there's bad energy in your home or maybe something like that, or maybe somebody's sick." The, the human voice that creates those waves uh, mm, in, in real time, yeah, the vibrations, is better than the recording off of your iPhone or things like that. So it's not to say that it's, it's bad and not good, 
but the, the actual sound of the human voice in real time has more blessing and more reward in it. And more power, I think. Yeah. I mean, I mean inshallah. Yeah. Inshallah. <laughs> Curative power as well. I mean, that literally is the ayah, is that, you know, the Quran is shifa, right? That's right. The act of reciting Quran itself is a shifa, mm. a cure. All right. Yeah. Alhamdulillah. So, yeah, so that, that's what I would say to art and all of that. It's just the, the power that it has, that it transcends. It is a language of its own, whether it's a person drawing. What does that do? People hang up art in their house. Why? Because you walk in and it creates a sense of beauty and does something to you. Like when you walk into your home or anything, if you open up a magazine and it's one of those things that somebody has studied colors and they studied textures and they, they've learned how to put it together, you can turn to that magazine and just stare at that page for a while and be like, man, that is a nice room, right? It, it, mm-hmm. it does something to you, right? And, and so we, we cannot, I think, take that away. This is why we design masjids a certain way. From the outside, when a person drives by, it creates a certain sense of beauty. When you walk into the masjid, you want, to, you want it to create a certain sense of beauty, even with the smells. You know, we have all these oils that we use in our tradition to create beautiful smells. The prophet used oils, right? So he, he chose Bilal to recite, to, to say the adhan because of his beautiful voice. It was like, this was stuff that was thought out. It's not just like, hey, you know, it's time for prayer. Who, who wants to give the adhan? Mm-hmm. Yeah, some random person. No, it's like, who amongst us has the best voice? Who amongst us mm-hmm. uh, recites the best? Who amongst us can really design this message to make it look beautiful? Who amongst us can create an atmosphere so that when people come into class, they feel so peaceful, right? This is all art, you know? And so I think art and how it's, its effect on Muslims and its effect on faith and Iman cannot be understated. Mm. I feel like what you're saying also is that art, in fact, is an expression of Ihsan. Absolutely, absolutely. It is the essence of Ihsan even, like the beautification of everything that we do, that as a Muslim, everything you do, you should be trying to imbue it with Ihsan, right? And that would come down to art as well. Like Allah gives you these blessings of a good voice or a steady hand or an ability to do complex architecture and engineering. So do not we then have a responsibility to use those talents and skills to create beautiful things that we all benefit from? Absolutely. I, I would say not only is it connected to Assam, but it's, it's connected to the Rahmah as well. Like through this, people who study it, because this is all blessings from Allah, people who study it and use it are creating extensions of Allah's mercy, right? Either through visually, through your... We all like have certain Quran reciters that we love to hear. You know, my, my recent favorite is a Sudanese brother who passed away recently. I think his name was Surain. But like his, his recitation is something, once I came across it, it's like, I want to listen to Quran all day long now. It's like, he was different. But it was also an extension of Allah's Rahmah, right? People who have designed messages, there's certain messages that I go into, it's like, I want to sit here all day, right? Now, I, I just like this message. It's comfortable. They put some extra padding under the carpet, the way they designed it, the entrance, the lights, you know, mm-hmm. all of that. Alhamdulillah, that was somebody who thought about that. And, and, and it just didn't fall down from the sky. It was somebody who believed in beauty, believed in art, and decided to take that Ihsan step and to... Uh, make that connection to Allah's mercy. Would you mind uh, translating Ihsan and Rahmah for listeners who might not yeah. be familiar with those terms? So, as anything, stuff will get lost in my attempt to translate. So, may Allah have mercy on all the Quranic translators. Uh, but Ihsan is, I think, a concept of 
trying to achieve a certain level of not perfection necessarily, but the best, you know, the best that you can produce. Right. Excellence. Yeah. Excellence. Yeah. Like doing the thing at its highest level. Yeah. Like I would say, like from the individual's perspective, it's doing the best that you can possibly do. Um, so that's kind of how I would put that. And then Rahma is even deeper concept comes from a word uh, that means womb in Arabic. And so it, it, I think, directs you to motherly love. And that process that happens in the womb and that, and that world that encompasses you and takes care of you and nurtures you as you develop and as you grow. That's kind of how it comes, like the, its roots and origin. But then, you know, most of us just kind of translate it as mercy, right? But, but not just mercy because it has, I'm not even sure, but like the derivative of the Arabic language that it takes, it could mean like overwhelming mercy. It could mean like never ending Mercy, like it's not just mercy, it's just like it has a different connotation to make it even more amazing when you say Rahman or Rahim. So that's how I would answer that question. Thank you. It was beautiful. Yeah. So as we touched on earlier, you've traveled all over the world to perform as Native Dean. How has the perception of the United States changed over the last 20 years, if at all, in the communities where you do these shows? Do people see you as representatives of your home country, um, or do they find solidarity with you in like your shared faith, or as people who have also suffered some things from the U.S. government, or is it more like a little bit of both, something else entirely? I'm curious to know about that. Out of all of our travels over the 20 years, it was about three times where we traveled on behalf of the State Department. Like the State Department would have some program where there's a cultural exchange maybe tap dancers from here go to Africa and this group from Africa comes to America and you get to see the cultures of both. And so we were part of this program where it's like, okay, well, we have Muslims in America that perform and we're going to bring them to these countries and then those countries are sending groups to America. Um, those trips were a little different. We experienced a different uh, kind of understanding of how people perceived us because it was like an official thing with the State mm. Department. You're literally representing the government in a lot of ways. In, in, in a lot of ways, yeah. Yeah. Outside of those, 100% of all of our other trips, as many as I can remember, people aren't even thinking about your country. Yes, you're, you're America, but it's like you're an individual, right? And they want to know about your individual life. And sometimes they're even surprised that there's Muslims in America, right? What? There's mm -hmm. Muslims in America? Really? Right? And they start asking you all these questions. Mm -hmm. and you're like, yeah, man, and we got schools and we got shops and... And it becomes this like exciting exchange that we became a part of. And then sometimes we would get into political discussions about, the, you know, why did, why did your country do this? But, but they really see it as your country separate from this individual that I'm talking to in front of me. Which, by the way, you don't always get that. And that's where I think harm comes a lot of times is when people connect the country with the person, right? And Americans need to know that because we do it all the time for other people, you know, like, even when I say yeah. Russia and China, sometimes, I mean, when I was growing up, man, we were so scared of Russians in the 80s, you know. <laughs> so many movies, right? It's like the Rocky and the... All the movies. You know? All the movies, <laughs> you know. And so, if somebody had a Russian accent, you were like, who is this? You know, who are they? You know, and that's just <laughs> kind of how we, how we felt. And so, people need to realize how quickly you can become a representative of your country when you're not. And I think that's why Muslims in America need to remember that that is the case sometimes, which is why you have the responsibility. You can't just live here and think that, well, I'm, 
you know, I'm not in Congress. I'm not voting. You know, I'm not in the military. I'm not. No, but you're here and your country's doing stuff over there. And so sometimes when you travel, you will be held accountable. Happened to my mother. Let me give you an example. My mother, Muhajiba, wears hijab, went to Sudan to teach English. While she was in Sudan, America bombed a pharmaceutical plant in Sudan. And they, of course, said, oh, oops, sorry, we thought that was, uh, you know, a terrorist hideout or something like that. But the damage was done. The people were, you know, killed. And it was a pharmaceutical plant. So a lot of it hurt the industry a lot in Sudan. The Sudanese were so upset, so upset, rightly so, right? They didn't care if you were Muslim or not. They cared more if you were American. And so Americans who were in Sudan had to stay inside for fear of their lives. Now, mm-hmm. Americans can understand that because that's what, ha- that's what happened in 9-11, I guess, if I can take the conversation back a little bit. When 9-11 happened, it didn't matter if you were American. It's if you were Muslim, you were in trouble, right? Yeah. And so Muslims had to stay inside for fear because Americans were the, in that same space of, I, I don't care, we were attacked and killed. And so I think when we travel, sometimes you get to hear those stories and see things from other perspectives that you don't see just by living in America and just by watching CNN and just by watching you know, our media. You get to see stuff. The media in different countries is very different. I mean, they show stuff very differently. In, in other countries. And, and there's a different narrative sometimes in other countries. And you realize like, man, yeah. wow, we didn't even know about that. You know, that sometimes we would have conversations like, what, that happened? And they're like, how could you not know about it? You know, it's like, well, it mm-hmm. wasn't, yeah. didn't make the news. You know, you had to really be in the know to know that. So yeah, our, our travels really exposed the bubble that we lived in. And I can kind of tell now who is traveled and who has gone across the world. When you talk to them, they kind of have this perspective of, they get it that, uh, oh, yeah. you know, and, and yeah, so definitely. I think we were blessed to kind of have that experience to travel, meet other people, other perspectives about Americans, about America, about Muslims in America. We got to hear from from other sides. Yeah. And sort of, you know, coming back to the domestic sphere a little bit within our communities here, there were a lot of things that had been affecting parts of our communities that after 9-11 sort of was directed at all of us. You know, so I'm talking about, you know, racial profiling, Mm -hmm. things like that, where I'm sure, you know, as a black Muslim, you were aware of this. But then a lot of people from immigrant communities suddenly woke up and realized that these things were happening and they were suddenly angry. And I just wonder if you have any feelings about that or any thoughts on that in terms of how I think we as South Asian Muslims or like Muslims from other backgrounds, like who are not black Muslims, really didn't do what we should have before 9-11. We really didn't stand up for our brothers and sisters in the way that we should have. And that was really a failure on our part that I hope that we're doing better now. But I'd really love to hear your thoughts on that. Man, if you thought the other conversations were deep, you just opened the door to the ocean. Let's go. I'm ready to swim. (laughs) You ready to swim? All right. So there was a, a missed opportunity in America when in the 60s, when a larger amount of Muslim immigrants were coming to America. There was always Muslim immigrants coming to America, right? Yeah. But um, there was a larger amount in, in the 60s. And some people have written about it. Dr. Jamila Karim has written about it a little bit, about the intentional effort that immigrant Muslims had to avoid black communities and to be associated more with white America. Remember, we're talking about the 60s, right? So, I mean, it's, 
one can at least understand it, whether or not you agree with it, that you're coming to America in the 60s, where are you going to move? Especially when the door that was opened up was for more professional type of, of Muslims, right? So it wasn't a lot of poor Muslims coming from these countries. Uh, this door that was opened up in the 60s was more for, do you want to study here? Do you want to mm-hmm. work here? And then so it, they could afford to be in more of suburban America. And so when you look at the landscape of America today in the Muslim communities, you still see that, that most of the immigrant communities have really developed and flourished in the suburbs. Now, that being said, 9-11 was experienced, post 9-11 was experienced differently by many, quote unquote, you know, at some point in time, we might get away from these terms, but quote unquote, immigrant Muslims versus, you know, black or more indigenous uh, or whatever you want to call it, Muslims. But um, for instance, places like Philadelphia, places like New York, places like Atlanta, uh, where the black Muslim community had already invested so much into community, right? that they didn't experience the, you know, the post-hate, you know, thing about Islam because people were like already saying, Salaam Alaikum, Aki, you know, people were already, uh, you know, you had family who were Muslim, cousins who were Muslim, right? You, you had street cred. And so still, you know, you could walk around with your headscarf and nobody would think to do anything to you. A lot of this was still credit from uh, the nation of Islam, with Malcolm X and, and uh, Elijah Muhammad and the work that they had done and that investment into the community so that in a lot of black communities, those names still garner a lot of respect, right? And so uh, when you talk about Farrakhan, Minister Louis Farrakhan, he is the only person that I know uh, who was able to do two million man marches, right? So when Muslims look at that, you have to like show some type of respect. Like that takes... That takes a lot of street cred for you to pull out a call like, hey, black America, we need to march on to, um, he didn't say black Muslim America. He said black America. Mm-hmm. And Muslims, whether they were Sunni, Shi'i, Muslims, whether they were Salafi or Sufi, non-Muslims, whether they were Christian or whatever, said, we hear your call and we're going to come on to D- uh, D.C. to support that issue, right? So there was a lot of that type of credit that was able to be utilized in the black Muslim community post 9-11, where I think for other Muslims, they saw like, yeah, we can't just build a masjid, build an Islamic school and kind of operate in a bubble and expect to have uh, people's trust when something horrible happens. Because you're just like this distant person who I don't really know. You're kind of this exotic thing. You guys come on Fridays and park in my parking lot, frustrate me. That's something that happens because, you know, Muslims sometimes park in other people's driveway, you know, and then you disappear. You know, I've been I went to your kebab place. It was good. But, you know, I don't really know who you are. Right. Right. And so it did it did cause a lot of people to kind of become more involved and to try to create some of those relationships. Yeah. And in terms of I think after 9-11, there was a lot of rhetoric amongst, you know, we've talked about what was happening externally from our communities, but within our communities, there was a lot of talk about, you know, being united and we were kind of in crisis mode, right? So we, even within ourselves, we suppressed a lot of the hard conversations and maybe some of the conflict that maybe needed to happen in order for change to happen and for things to get better, just because we were sort of battening down the hatches and weathering the storm. But I think now, 20 years later, we're getting a little better at having some of those conversations about like what we need to fix within our own communities, whether that comes to like 
you know, racism or misogyny or, uh, and a lot of communities are not doing a great job yeah. of that. But I think we're starting to do better, at least from where I'm sitting. I'm glad you brought me back to that because I, I was saying something at the beginning that there was a missed opportunity in the 60s. And the missed opportunity that I was talking about was was something prophetic where when the Muhajireen came to the Ansar, people from Mecca coming to join the community of, of Medina, the Prophet did something very interesting and he paired people up, right? Like literally said, hey, this is your sister. This is your brother. Treat them as such, right? Not just friends, but like treat them as if they're your brother. And I think we didn't have respected leadership mm. or uh, leadership with wisdom. Maybe that's too harsh. But that was able to do that. A lot of people didn't respect the leadership of Imam Wadifadim Muhammad, right, coming into the country. And so because they didn't ex respect his leadership, I think that was a missed opportunity on utilizing his wisdom and, and others mm -hmm. to say, hey, we have this uh, infrastructure here. You know, we have the messages here. We have farms here. We have, we have these things. You guys are coming here with a, a certain talent. Alhamdulillah. How can we work together to continue building this momentum of Islam in America, right? To me, that was the missed opportunity, right? And instead it was like, for years, I would go to Chicago. There was a, the ISNA convention was in Chicago and so was the, the convention led by Imam Warathadi Muhammad. They were always in the same city in the same weekend. Yeah, that's and right. And they never, I think one time they tried it, but they never really kind of said, let's have this convention together. Let's, they just stayed separate. And um, it was the community's loss. The community is the one that really suffered. It kind of goes back to what you're saying about being known and knowing each other, right? Mm. Not just, you know, where you live and in the community where you live, like the Black Muslim community didn't know the community that was coming, obviously, because they were immigrants. Mm -hmm. And the immigrants coming in didn't have any knowledge of who was already here, mm -hmm. what they had established, what they had built, what they had suffered, what they had fought for, and what they had gained through a lot of strife and a lot of sacrifice. You know, a lot of our elders, they just kind of showed up and were like, hey, we're here to aspire to this mainstream American dream of whiteness and prosperity. And so that led them down a very different path. And what, you know, Rasulullah, what the Prophet had, he knew both communities, mm -hmm. you know. So when they came to Medina, he knew the community in Medina. He also knew his community that was coming from Mecca. And so he was able to, like, be that bridge between them. Mm -hmm. And we didn't really have that bridge or, or we, we didn't really work on creating those bridges, I guess. And that was our loss, as you said. Yeah. And, you know, there's also, like, unfortunately, this underlying racism that happens globally. Under, over, left, right. <laughs> it's, you know. yeah, just like the, the ocean, as you said, that we're swimming in. And that always complicates everything. Do you think that if that incoming immigrant generation had had some understanding of the history that they were coming into, that it might have played out differently? Or is the racism just too big? Um, the racism is definitely just too big. It's nothing new. We have statements from, you know, the prophet's time of, it being a, an insult, you know, one companion is calling another companion, you son of a black woman, right? And then he had to, then he had mm. to go and, and apologize. So that, that language was there. It's still there. People in so many cultures don't like to be too dark. Why is yeah. darkness seen as mm -hmm. something not beautiful? You know, some would argue, and I would agree, that it goes back to uh, the time of Adam and Iblis and Shaitan, because Adam as described in the Quran, it doesn't really get pulled out in many Sunday schools, 
But the language in the Quran is that he was created from a very dark mud, right? So Adam was very dark, very black. And so when, when one thinks about that and reflects on it, that that is the image that Shaitan was looking at, right? He's looking at this black person or this extremely dark person that Allah is commanding him to bow down to. And so all of his animosity and hatred, that's the image. I think that has a lot to do with this continued theme of people hating blackness from from that time. And so I would I would agree wow. with that. I would never I've never thought I've never thought about I've that. I've never heard that either, but that's really yeah. Yeah, because yeah, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense of why the darkness of your skin is a negative thing, right? Mm. And and people will say, Oh, she has such beautiful skin or she has such beautiful hair or you know, or she's so beautiful, right? Most of the time that's not hair that looks kinky hair, you know, that's not skin that looks dark skin. And so we have, we have internalized these concepts of beauty that are really anti black. And and I would love mm-hmm. for people when they see a really dark person say, Man, mashallah, you know, you, you remind me of Adam and Howard. You know, it's just like oh, well, just just to that. say something beautiful about that. Uh, because in the children's books that we have, I remember I remember reading some Sunday school children's books and they would have these silhouettes of Adam and Eve. They were not very dark, right? So it, mm. it almost gets erased from the history, even though it's in the Quranic language. And the same thing has happened to the Christian community, right? I was going to say, it's reminding me of white Jesus right now. Absolutely. <laughs> Blonde and blue-eyed Jesus. Absolutely. Yeah. And they, they have to rectify that, that there's literally almost zero chance that he looked like that at all, but you still put that up on the imagery across the world for people to look at and see that this is the image of Christ Jesus. And what mm-hmm. is preventing you from taking your own scholarship? Because their own scholars say that, look, this book here, what did Jesus look like? Oh, it's it's not, from a, not from a Muslim <laughs> scholar, right? Their, their own scholars write about, okay, Jesus was not white. So what's preventing you from mm-hmm. either just taking the image down and say, you know, we, we made a mistake, we apologize to the world, or correcting it, that it probably looked more like this. That know? would disrupt white supremacy too much. It will never happen. Yeah. And in addition to all of that, like, really foundational human racism that we've been kind of perpetuating throughout the many centuries, a lot of these immigrant communities were also coming from formerly colonized places. Mm-hmm. So they were also, they had ingrained and internalized that racial hierarchy that these European countries had like so violently put into place in these countries. And I mean, just because they had, you know, left, that doesn't mean that people had decolonized their minds. They definitely hadn't. You know, it's it's an ongoing process. So the question that Allah asked, I think, remains to all of us. Allah asked Iblis when he refused to bow down to Adam, he said, based on what? Like, who gave you permission? Right. You're, you're saying that you're better than him. I'm, I'm the one Allah saying, I'm the one that would say that, you know, who's better than who or what's better than what. So I didn't say that. Who gave you permission to say that? That's that's like a very deep. Right. It's the kibber, isn't it? It's yes, the pride. Right. That sense of superiority of himself, yeah. which is what is behind all racism, right? So we may not say it, but when we feel like, because it's, it's okay to say, I prefer, like, I, I prefer to marry is I, it though? I have different thoughts about that. I, I think so because people have preferences. You know, some people like tall people, some people like... Sh- but I wonder how much those preferences are a cover for prejudices. Well, well, that's okay. So the person has to reflect on a on an individual level for that. But I don't think it's wrong for a person to say like, I like short people. I want to marry a short person. I, w- I want to marry a, 
person like this or a person like that, right? It's another thing to feel like that person is not worthy to marry my daughter or to marry my son. So you you get into something separate when a person says, how's that going to look, that person marrying into our family? You're really saying mm-hmm. that they're not as good as us. And then so that question would remain, says who, yeah. right? If you can help somebody find where their racism begins and their preference ends, because I do think that that can become blurry only if they haven't taken time to sit with it. But once you've sat with it, it becomes clear, right? But if a person's just kind of been going their whole life and nobody's really pressed them on it, then yeah, they can like, in their head, make sense. Oh no, it's just what I prefer. And then if somebody like you comes and asks the right questions, presses them a little bit more, then they might see like, oh, you know, I got a little of that Iblis uh, syndrome in me from whatever. <laughs> That's a good word for it, Iblis syndrome. So throughout this conversation, we have had the privilege of hearing so much about the work that you've done in the community. And there's this clear thread running through your life of not just community work, but particularly youth work. And so in previous episodes, we've talked a lot to each other and to other Muslims who are kind of more of our age about the impact that the mentorship of those who came before us had on us. And often they wouldn't even be a lot older than us. Sometimes they'd just be a few years older. But you kind of acted as a vanguard and a buffer for us as we came of age, as we grew into our Islamic practice and into the kind of adult Muslims that we wanted to be. What kind of broader impact do you feel that youth work and community work has on the community? And do you see a difference in how the young Muslims who came of age in that sort of early 2000s period, how they negotiated their Muslim identities versus the students that you mentor now in your role as the chaplain at Duke? Um, I, I see the principles of youth work and youth relationship have not changed. I think the principles are the same. There's, there's like little details that change, right? What's the latest video game? What are the kids up to nowadays? Is it TikTok? Is it this? Is it that? You know, these are like mediums, but the principles are the same, which is youth need people close to them that really care about them. And when you put youth in very fertile communities around people who really care about them and love them, it's just magical things happen. And that's a principle that I think people have to remember no matter what type of technology or thing is going on, you have to have that. And I think we have a lot to learn from the Jewish community and youth development. They, I think, do a much better job of showing love and care and concern and guidance and mentorship to their young people at a very young age. And I don't think there's anything wrong with us studying other cultures and communities who do things better. Mm. And so the knowledge, uh, at least this is how I understand it from my tradition of studying the prophet and studying the Quran, is that when there's good information, it belongs to the believer. It's not like it belongs to anybody in particular. If, I, if you have something that I can benefit from that's going to make me a better husband, that's going to make me a better a community member, that's going to make me a better servant of Allah, it's my property. I have a right to, to learn from you and, and, to, and to absorb that. And so I think the Muslim community struggles with not putting, uh, we talked about Ihsan earlier, we've struggled trying to do youth work with Ihsan, right? With the youth program, you can't just 
throw somebody in there and call them a, a youth worker or a youth director or, or a youth program, you have to put the same type of thought into it about, okay, what type of youth do, do we have? What's going to happen if a youth comes into the masjid and they do something wrong? Do we have something in place to protect them from some random community member making them embarrassed or upset and, you know, fired? Like, put some thought into it, right? I think if we do that more, you'll find some more magical things that would happen with our youth. And I'll use this opportunity in your platform to tell people in my uh, 11 years of experience of being a youth worker at the masjid, the first thing that I tell people when they would come asking for my advice about, oh, we're about to start a youth program. What do you suggest? I say, don't do it. Don't, do not start a youth program until your board of directors is on the same page as your volunteers, is on the same page as your masjid employees. All of them have to be on the mm. same page. Otherwise, you're inviting these young, impressionable beautiful youth into an atmosphere where they're going to be hurt so bad and they're going to run out that message and not want to return and they're going to tell they're going to tell all their friends yeah. not to return because they're a horrible mm-hmm. place and i've seen it and we have we had an example of that in our own local community mm. very recently like a few weeks ago so that's a very yeah. good point they'll, they'll run out and once and once they run out it's like it takes a generation to get them back right because Word of mouth goes faster than the flyer or the email that you want to put out. Say, hey, come for pizza at the message. No, they're not believing that. They're not believing that. Mm-hmm. They already know that you don't care, uh, that you're more concerned about your reputation than their um, their heart and their minds. And so once you have that meeting, like, this is how we're going to handle youth that come into this message, then you can start. Because I guarantee you, if you have a successful youth program and more youth start coming to the message, your intermingling is going to go up. Your uh, damages are going to go up. Your fights are going to go up. All, all that stuff goes up. It's directly proportional to having more youth in the message. So you have to be prepared for it, right? You can't just be like, oh, there was a fight. So, you know, that program's canceled. Kick the youth out of the message. It's like, no, this is part mm-hmm. of youth work, you know? Mm-hmm. So you got to be prepared for it. Get yeah, your funding right so for true. it. Get your uh, staff yeah. ready for it. How are we going to report it? How are we going to handle it? How are we going to give these youth a, a spiritual hug? And make sure that they mm. know that we at least love them and that we at least care for them and that we're we're yeah. upset that that happened, but we we still want you to succeed and how can we fix this? Like if they know that, then I think you'll see the magical things start to happen. Especially, you know, in the context that we live in now where Muslim kids don't have any safe spaces to make mistakes because for our kids, like making any kind of mistake has such devastating consequences. You know, if you're in a public school and like your teacher is even bullying you, like your classmates are bullying you, you're like constantly under a microscope. You know, we talked to Dr. Khalija El-Shayel, who's a scholar of uh, Muslim activism in Britain, and she was telling us about this program that they have in the UK where your teachers are given a job by the government to watch their Muslim students and make sure they're not like too religious because that's a sign of like something suspicious that needs to be reported to the government. So like in that kind of environment... Providing our kids with a safe space to make mistakes is so important Mm. that they can trust. Yeah. And one of the things that I've been thinking throughout this conversation and just in general as we've been doing this is, you know, the seven types of people who will receive Mm. shade under Allah's arsh on the Day of Judgment and how people really often forget that one of those groups is people who practiced Islam in their youth. And I mean, there's so much to unpack in that, but... The first thing is that practicing Islam in your youth is so difficult. Mm -hmm. And it's why it's one of the most elevated groups in front of Allah. Can you give your thoughts on 
the value of practicing Islam in your youth? And why should they? Why should Muslims try so hard when they're young to practice Islam and hold on mm, to it mm. when it's so difficult? That is a good question. And I will say, first, I'm going to come back and address practicing Islam. Because to me, that's like a big unpacking. But two, I think one of the things that my generation and others forget about young people today is, even though I said some of the principles are the same, some realities season things very differently. Like the social media and the ability to record something and have it immediately plastered for millions to see is not something that we dealt with when we were younger, right? Yeah. And so when you talk about cyberbullying, that's real. When you talk about, okay, my generation, we had to deal with the magazines. You're walking in the grocery store, you see a magazine and have this image. And now that image affects my own personal image. Do I look as good as that guy on the, on the magazine with all his muscles? And do I look as pretty as the girl in the magazine with all her, right? And so you deal with that. But now you have it on a whole different level. These images that are coming through these youth yeah. and what they're trying to do to mm -hmm. their body to uphold a certain thing, right? So even more so, we have to show that as uh, Anissa was saying, that we're here for you, we care for you, we love you. This is a safe space to kind of talk about these things. And with people who have been trained in understanding that, not just somebody who's going to tell them, what are you talking about? That's haram. Why'd you even bring that up, right? Mm. So, so important. But to, on the issue of practicing Islam, I really want people to, this is my opinion, of course, so I'm entitled to it, but I could be wrong and you can disagree. Practicing Islam does not just mean praying and fasting, and reading the Qur'an. Practicing Islam, uh, one should really understand the concept of Islam, which is more of a word that means, how are you submitting to Allah? How are you approaching God, right? How do you do that? Charity is one of the foundational things that we were talking about, right? So you just being a person who likes to help others, whether it's if you don't have money, you, you're, helping, you're always helping somebody as a volunteer, you're always giving your time, you help people fix stuff. You're just such a charitable person. You should know that you're practicing Islam, right? You should know that. You should believe that. I can tell you for sure, nobody, nobody does everything. If we did, there wouldn't be this concept of seeking forgiveness on a regular basis, right? This is something that the prophet, mm. the, the prophet in the Quran, it says his past and future shortcomings were all forgiven, right? So alhamdulillah. But what he did in exchange for that was he just started praying even more. The companions asked him, why are you praying so much? He said, they said, aren't you all your sins like forgiven? He said, well, shouldn't I be a grateful servant? Right? So that's his relationship. So if that's even the prophet who has that special status, the rest of us are not doing everything. We're not doing stuff perfectly. So don't let somebody, I don't want anybody to say that I'm not a practicing Muslim, right? Oh yeah. Are they Muslim? Yeah, but they don't practice. No, that's not the case. You take pride in what you do practice, right? I may not be doing all my prayers, but I, I am definitely a charitable person. And alhamdulillah, may Allah bless me for that. I might not be, you know, that charitable person, but I'm always thinking good of others, right? Even your thoughts, like a person forgiving people, being, you know, open-minded. Maybe, maybe they did it because of this. Or because, that's something that nobody's going to see. Only Allah sees that. And that's a way of practicing Islam. And there's a hadith that supports this. Uh, there was a man... Uh, the prophet said the next person that walks into the masjid is going to be a person of Jannah. And the person walked in and the companions were like, who's that? Like, <laughs> I don't know that person. And one person was so curious. He was like, can I like stay with you for a little bit? He was he's like, what is this person doing that makes him a person of Jannah? And he didn't see anything different, like nothing out of the ordinary. 
And then, so finally, he just confronts the guy. He's like, okay, okay. The prophet said you were a person of gender, but I don't really see anything that you're doing. And the person's like, I don't know. Maybe it's that before I go to bed every night, I forgive. I forgive everybody of mm-hmm. any harm that they've done to me. Like, that's something that nobody's going to see. That's just between him and Allah. And that is a form of practicing Islam. So I, I really want to discourage people from saying that they're not practicing Muslims because that that's a door that opens up that makes you believe that yourself. And then you start acting like that, like, oh, I'm this non-practicing Muslim. No, think about the things that you're doing that are under the banner of being a Muslim and are under the banner of being a practicing this deen of Islam and build on it and you know, whatever you're doing, try to make it stronger. Whatever you're not doing, try to do a little bit of it. You know, if you're not praying at all, maybe start praying for people. Start with one. Even even before that, like be prayerful. Like, uh, do you pray for others? Right. That's an easy way to start. Like you see somebody did good. You say, you know what? Yeah, Allah bless them. Yeah, Allah, you know, give them more good, increase them in their wealth. Like it's something easy you can do in passing, you know, on your way to something. You just see something good, become a prayerful person. Prayers actually comes from a word. That means connect, you know, connect with Allah. So we shouldn't even think of prayers just like this ritual. It's like, no, this, this Allah is talking about connect with me. Come and talk to me, right? So you can talk to Allah more. That's where you can start. And then inshallah, that'll lead to one of the five daily prayers and maybe two and then maybe four. But just start talking to Allah more because that is also salah. Be, be prayerful. And so if I wanted to leave anybody with a message, I would say, don't, you know, don't consider yourself not practicing. Whatever you're practicing, do it better with some isan, as you guys said. And whatever you're not doing, try to ease it in uh, before Allah calls us back. I think that's a really beautiful place to end our conversation. Yeah. Where can people find you on the internet? Unfortunately, I'm not very good on the internet. It's probably just as well. That is not something I do with ihsan. <laughs> What's the opposite of ihsan? That's probably what I do. I don't even know. Um, <laughs> when it comes to the internet, probably not going on it too much as ihsan. Is ihsan, ihsan. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, people can email me. You know, right now, my uh, my professional email is joshua.salam at duke.edu. And you can email me there and inshallah, I'll get back to you. I do have an Instagram but, but do you know how to use no. it? No. I, I don't know how to use mine either. So, <laughs> Me neither. Uh, we're in the same boat. <laughs> we're all too old now. We're all old together, yeah. yeah. I, all right. I'm glad we end that way. We're all <laughs> from a different generation. <laughs> exactly. We really are when we're talking about Instagram. Also, before we leave off entirely, I just want to tell everybody that as a kind of a supplementary manifesto to your closing message, go and listen to Small Deeds. Mm. That's a song that has guided me a lot. In, in the last 15 years or so. Yes. We will link to it in the show notes. Yeah. Small D's that are overlooked. Can you see? Little D's that are overlooked. And you read. Read about it in my holy book. It says, small D's never. I just can't believe. There you go. Thank you. Oh my gosh. A live performance. That's even better. What a gift. Jazakum. Okay. Really what a gift. And where can people find us, Khadija, on the internet? They can find us on Twitter, where Anissa knows what we're doing, but I don't, at MipsPod, M-I-P-S-P-O-D. And you can email us at muslimInplainsight at gmail.com. And you can subscribe to the podcast on the app of your choice, or you can go to muslimInplainsight.com and subscribe there. Thank you for listening. Jazakallah Karen for sharing your time with us. This was such an incredible, I definitely feel like we swam in the ocean together. And I feel like six eyes I didn't have just opened. (laughs) 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 
Alhamdulillah. Thank you. Thank you. Assalamualaikum. Wa alaikum salam.